Uh, if you have your Bibles today, go ahead and, and turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you're new or newer with us, we've been studying the He Is statements of Scripture. Uh, as you notice uh, during our bumper video there, there's a lot of times where the New Testament says He is in regards to Christ Jesus, and then it explains exactly who Jesus is. And, and I love it that it always says it in the present because Jesus is alive. Uh, the, the authors of, of the New Testament want us to know exactly who Jesus is and all of the implications. So you can turn to Colossians 1. I'm going to be giving us a little bit of a preface from Acts uh, chapter 9 or in just a moment, but you can, we're, our, our he is statements in Colossians chapter 1. I mentioned to you all, uh, I don't know, maybe in a sermon last summer, that that when my kids were a little bit younger, my wife and I decided that our backyard that has had nine trees and a full yard of Pachysandra needed to be cleared because we wanted to have space for our kids to play and, and, a, and, a, and a jungle gym and all that good stuff that you want to put out in the backyard. And so we had the trees taken down, and I mentioned to you what a project it was to pull up an entire yard full of Pachysandra. It was, it was vicious work. It took us two weeks, and, and you have either two choices. You either pull it out by the root or you spray chemicals on it. And we really don't want to spray chemicals on it. We were having children that are going to be running back there, you know. So, so we decided that we'd pull it by hand. Now, now, I mentioned that all to you, and you all laughed at my misfortune and how, how bad it was. But there was another surprise waiting for me when we got that entire yard full of Pakistandra pulled so we could plant grass. Strewn about the yard in almost every corner, my wife can attest to this, were random bricks and pavers. And they were, they were in the ground, they were, they were three-quarter buried, and they were everywhere with absolutely no discernible pattern. And I want you to picture for just a moment taking two weeks to pull a yard full of Pachysandra and then realizing you have to dig out 150 bricks in random places. That is what we discovered. When I realized that it was going to be that much work, I thought to myself, we just should have sprayed the chemicals. My kids could have grown another eye or an 11th finger. It would have been okay. I, I would have been okay with that. When I, so we painstakingly had to pull all these bricks and all these papers. And I want to tell you, there was no discernible pattern. There, there was, it wasn't creating a, a border, a path. I couldn't figure it out. It was just bricks all over the place. And they were a thorn in my side. Now, before we read our He Is statement of the day, we are going to read a passage about the author the author of the particular he is statements that we're going to look at today and next week is a man we know as Paul. But Paul was once known as Saul. And Saul was the greatest thorn in the side of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. And I want to read who he was and what he was doing before we read his he is statement today. Because you want to talk about no discernible pattern, you're going to find something that just doesn't make much sense. But I think by the end of our message today, it'll make sense why once the greatest persecutor of the church gives us some of the highest theology about Jesus in the church. So I'm just going to read, it's going to be up on the screen, just going to give you a character sketch of this Paul, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now this Saul was standing there and approving at the death of the first Christian martyr. This Saul was imprisoning and arranging for the execution, we, we suspect, 
of Christians who at that time were called The Way. Apparently they thought The Way sounded too much like a cult, so we changed our name to Christian. But anyhow, uh, Paul, Saul at this point, was so zealous to destroy the people of Christianity, so zealous to destroy the way, not only was he persecuting the Jews in Israel, he now asks for letters from the high priest to go to Syria and find any who might be in the synagogues there who claim to be Christians and bring them back and imprison them. This is how zealous this guy is for persecuting the church. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this same Saul, the chief persecutor of the church, uh, uh, the, the, the zealous opponent of Christ, is the author of 13 books of your New Testament. This man is also the writer of the granddaddy of all the he is statements. In fact, what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1 today, there are four he is statements in just four verses. But there's in those, in those four verses, there are actually eight points made about who Jesus is. Incredibly deep, incredibly enormous statements about who Christ is. So loaded that we're not going to get through it to this week. We're going to have to take two weeks of Sundays to unpack all his he is statements. So as we read the he is statement today, I, I just want to do it against the backdrop of this one-time persecutor of the church. And I want you to keep in mind this question as we're reading. How did the chief opponent of Jesus Christ in the world end up making four of the most grand and substantial claims ever about Jesus Christ? How did this lone thorn in the side of the church, this annoying brick, how did he go from rival to dedicated servant? Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I wanted to read all the way through 19, but there's so much there, we're going to stop at 17 today. We'll pick up there next week. He, this being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we really have three different things going on here that we're going to have to unpack and talk about today. The first is that Paul, or Paul says, formerly Saul, says he is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. The second thing he says is he is the firstborn of all creation. And then he unpacks that with one of the biggest run-on sentences I've ever seen to, to try to say that creation is, is, is in him, by him, through him, and for him. That, that's what it means to be the firstborn of all creation. And then he says that he holds all things together. Now, I was trying to think about what I could use to explain he holds all things together, and I really didn't want to call the Lord glue. And I really didn't want to call him duct tape. That didn't sound good. And I thought lag bolt was just a bit too, you know, hardcore. So we went with mortar. He is the mortar of the universe. He is holding all things together and making sense of them. So let's talk about these things one by one, and if you're taking notes, there'll be great PowerPoint slides up there to help you. So first, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. This Jesus is the exact representation of God. The exact representation of God has walked among us. Isn't that incredible? 
In human form, God, the exact representation of that God, has walked among us. He's not sort of like God. He's not God-light. He is God. He is the exact representation of God. Children always know a counterfeit, don't they? They always know when it's not name brand. When I was a child, I was always horrified when I got Dr. Bob instead of Dr. Pepper, you know? It's sort of like Dr. Pepper, and your parents are like, it's just like Dr. Pepper. You're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. That is Mountain Holler, not Mountain Dew. Tasty-Os do not taste like Cheerios. They just look like them. And sweet and wheatfuls are not frosted mini-wheats. So parents, spend the extra 50 cents so that your kids can get the original. They know, I just saw someone hit their wife right here in the crowd. I will not say who, but I just saw it. You you know a counterfeit. You know an almost like. You know a, a sort of like that. Kids don't want the food club brand. And I want to tell you, human beings have had a lot of imitations over the years. A lot of people who sort of looked like God, a lot, a lot of people who, 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 who spoke well for God. In fact, there were even prophets who spoke for God, but who certainly weren't the exact representation of God on earth. Only Jesus can make that claim. Now, there are some who, who, are, who are incredulous about this. They would say, oh, I don't know that Jesus would have made that claim about himself. This is Paul later on, having drunk the Kool-Aid of Christianity, deciding that Jesus was that. John 14, 9 says, and this were the words of Jesus himself, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says it himself. Hey, you want to see God? Take a look. You've got it. What that means is huge. That means that Jesus is not sort of like God. He is God. It reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 1. It's not going to show up on your screen today. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He with with and was. He was with God the Father, but he was God the Father. They are so indiscernible other than their role as persons. That's what's going on with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're, 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 They're indiscernible because they are so unified, so fully loving. They're better than twins, you know how twins can finish each other's sentences? Like, like God begins and finishes the sentence together among himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they, they are so connected that they are indiscernible from one another aside from the roles that they play. Isn't that cool? That's how, 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 how awesome they are. So that when, when God looked, I assume it's God the Father looking at the Holy Spirit and Christ saying, let us create man in our own image. They're like, that's a great idea. I was thinking the same thing, right? <laughs> that, that, is the, that is the unity that exists within the Trinity. And so when Jesus comes to earth, even taking on the form of human flesh, he's coming in the image of God because we also are created in the image of God, but that image is marred. We don't all look exactly like God, especially from a spiritual sense. But Jesus can look like God perfectly, even as a human being, and that's what he did. But the implications of that are incredibly huge, and this is the implication. Everything that God wanted to communicate about himself, in word, in manner, and in deed, was seen and heard in Jesus Christ. If he's the exact image, everything that God needed to communicate about himself is communicated in who Jesus is and how Jesus conducted himself. That's a pretty big statement. 
That's a pretty big statement from somebody who used to believe Jesus was a heretic. That, that's, that's Paul writing that. That's, that's formerly Saul who says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He once tried to stamp out the church and now he's saying he is it. He is everything. Oh, and by the way, he is the second point, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's a lot of clauses in there. If you look down at your scriptures and you, and you, and you read this again in verses 15, or in 16 uh, specifically, you see that for by him all things were created. Then move it out 12 commas on to the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Now, I don't know the way that your particular translation reads it, Uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version today, but some translations say, for all things were created in him rather than by him. And if we want to get real technical this morning, if you read the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written in, it does say, for in him all things were created. And so what what we're really seeing here is, is the translators trying to get their mind around the idea that Jesus is the the cause of creation. Not just the cause like, let's go ahead and create, but the cause of we won't create without you. In and by is a a loaded way of putting it, but then just, just, just to really bring home the point, Paul ends the sentence after talking about all rulership and dominion and thrones, then he says everything was created through him and for him. Just so we would know that creation does not take place without Jesus. Not just from a standpoint of who created, but the why of creation. More on that in just a little bit. Christians get caught up on this firstborn thing. Because we we see in scripture that Jesus is not a created being. And when we see firstborn, we somehow get this image of our mind of, okay, does God have a wife? Did, did they have Jesus? Is, is this like Mount Olympus? What's, what's going on here? But what is really going on here is the function of a firstborn within a family, especially in the ancient world. And that's why it says, uh, the firstborn of all creation, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The firstborn within the ancient family is the one who eventually has the right to exercise his father's authority over his father's possessions. The the statement firstborn here isn't that Jesus was created or that Jesus was born. The idea of the second person of the Trinity coming to earth was that he was going to get to exercise dominion over his father's possession in the same way in the ancient world that a firstborn would exercise dominion over his father's possession. What does the Bible say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? But if you look around the earth today, you'd see a lot of things that you go, I don't know if that's really God's. You see some activities going on, you see some people that you really have some questions about, you see some evil going on in the world, you go, I don't know that that really belongs to God. Well, as we talked about last week, at the end of time, Jesus will stand in judgment over all creation. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and all things will be brought back into possession of God through Jesus Christ. This is a theme of the New Testament. I don't have time to unpack it today other than to say God as Father has entrusted entrusted all of his possessions, the earth and everything in it, 
to Christ Jesus. In fact, the universe has been entrusted to Christ. Maybe a good way to understand it is to read Hebrews 1-2, where it says that Jesus is the heir of all creation. Can you bring that up, Tina? Yeah, one more down. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Jesus, in his place as the firstborn, is the one who has the right to take possession of it all. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here when he talks about firstborn. The point is not to state that Jesus is a created being. It was to state that Jesus inherits creation. Jesus inherits creation. And of course, we know that Jesus will inherit creation at the end of time. If you want some further reading on this to see the theology behind it, and you're taking notes this morning, write down in your Bibles Philippians chapter 2. You can also write down, if you want to study this out, it's where we get our verse as a church, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this. And also 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 talks all about how at the end of time, Jesus is going to bring all things back under the dominion of the Godhead, and he is the one through whom God will retake possession of all the earth. That's what he means by firstborn in creation. That's why it says in and by and through and for. But I want to go back for just a second. I want to go back to this assertion that God will not create without Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the reason behind creation. Jesus is the central point of all history. That's what, that's what Paul means when he says he holds all things together. He brings sense and meaning to this creation thing. The fact that the eternal God who exists outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, would create in an instant, see Big Bang, would create in a moment matter, time, and space. He doesn't decide to do this without the causality of the second person of the Trinity that we know is Jesus the Son. Why? Why is creation in and by and through and for him? What is it about Jesus that holds this whole thing together? Well, the answer is this. God was not going to create the universe unless he could redeem it. You see, God was fully aware. He knew that if he created humans with a free will, they had great potential to enter into creative, fulfilling, loving, collaborative relationship with him. He knew that we had that potential if he created us, but he also knew being fully aware that giving us this gift of free will would also lead to evil, harm, and death. So God our Father would not create humans without the ability to redeem them, to buy us back and rescue us from sin, harm, and death. Somewhere in eternity past, which is an oxymoron, somewhere in eternity past, 
before the universe was created, I imagine a conversation went something like this among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will only create them if you will redeem them. I'll only create them if you'll purchase salvation for them. I'll only create if you will become one of them. I'll only create if you'll show them how to live. I'll only create if you'll defeat sin and death on their behalf and you'll pay the penalty that they'll never be able to pay for the misuse of their free will. Jesus, Savior, I'll only create if that becomes your name. I'll only create if one day we can purchase it all back. I'm going to create them with free will because otherwise they could never choose to come into a relationship with me. Otherwise, those humans are just robots. But knowing that I will create them with free will will lead to harm, evil, and death. I will only create, Jesus, with salvation from you in mind. Because human beings going off and doing our own things apart from the creator, do nothing but cause harm and serve no ultimate purpose. When we move away from what God created us for and we move away from the creator, we, we literally are moving away from the mortar of the universe. We're moving away from the one who can make sense of it all and make it work. Without Christ, creation is just a bunch of consternating bricks buried in the ground with no apparent purpose, unity, with no meaning. The stars are bricks. The galaxies, they're bricks. The, the water we drink, it's a brick. The, the air we breathe, it's a brick. Your life, it's history, your talents, your impact, it is just a brick strewn about the yard without Christ. Only he as the creator can bring it together and give it meaning in such a way that we find the aim of God for our lives and know where we fit in this grand and beautiful universe. He holds everything together. He makes sense of it all. He creates the pattern by which our life ultimately builds something for eternity. And that's what happened to Saul. That's what happened to this man who was the chief opponent of Christ, who now says he is the image of God and he is the glue, the mortar of the universe. In his own words, in Acts chapter 22, Paul tells us what happened to him. Paul says, I was on my way and I was drawing near to Damascus where, remember, he was going to imprison in order to kill Christians. And about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, Saul says, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, catch this, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Christ says to Paul, there it will be told where you fit in the grand scheme of my creation. 
there in Damascus, I'm going to send somebody to you that tells you where the brick that is your life fits in the structure that I'm building for eternity. Ananias, a man of God, comes to Paul and he says this to him in 14 and 15. He says, the God of our fathers appointed you, Saul, to know his will, to see his righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and you've heard. Saul saw Jesus for who he was. He heard the voice of Jesus for the first time. Now he knew why he was created and what God wanted him to do. You see, God was fully aware. He knew that if he created Saul with a free will, that Saul had great potential to enter into creative, loving, and collaborative relationship with him. But he also knew that giving him the gift of free will would lead to evil, harm, and death. He wouldn't create Saul without the ability to redeem him. In the same way that God created the entire universe, he created Saul with a purpose, with meaning, but that can only be expressed through the redemption that's offered in the creator-redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul sees for the first time. He sees where he fits in the pattern of what God is doing in the world. He sees Christ, he hears Christ, and now he knows what he has been appointed to do. It's there again in verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see his righteous one, and to hear the voice from his mouth. And in the same way, As grand as the universe is, God has created you to know his will, to see his righteous one, and to hear the voice from his mouth so that you would know what you are appointed to do. You see, God was fully aware. He knew that if he created you with a free will, you had great potential to enter into creative, loving, and collaborative relationship with him. He also knew that giving you the gift of free will would lead to evil, harm, and death. So he didn't create you unless he could redeem you. He looked at you before you were born and said, I will only create that one if there is potential for that one to be part of my redeemed creation. Because when that man or woman recognizes that Jesus is the in, the by, the through, and the for, the mortar of the universe, the only one that can help them make sense of their life in the grand scheme of my creation, that person will know what they are appointed to do. Each one of us was created with that moment in mind, the the, the moment that we recognize Christ for who he is, see him as the righteous one of God, hear his voice. This is what happens for us when we recognize the mortar of the universe. And in line with what we've read today, when we see Jesus for who he is, we're done seeking another image of God. We've seen it in him. We're done seeking out God's will for our life insofar as it could be found any place other than in the will, in the sight, and in the voice of Christ Jesus. See, many people see Jesus glancing, and they hear Jesus for a moment. But unless they turn their head and align their ear 
they will not see the image of God. And some of you who are sitting today, you have not yet turned your head, caught sight of, and listened fully to the image of the invisible God. But you will never, ever see what God intended you to see unless you turn your head. Jesus is it. It's not Jesus and, it's not Jesus also. It's Jesus. And when you see the image of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you stop your search for meaning there. You've found it in him. When you see God for who he is, all pursuit of other appointments in life end. Because he has a work for you to do. It was appointed for you before you were born, Ephesians 2.10. You stop your search for meaning. You stop your search for for fulfillment, you stop your search for satisfaction because you found the one who can bring that all and bring it in abundance. And perhaps today, there are those among us who have seen Jesus and heard his voice, but for some reason we have taken our eyes off the image of God and we are now seeking meaning in some other ideology, some other pursuit, some other person. And I tell you today, it is a wasted effort. Because he is the image of God, and he is the in, the by, the through, and the for. He is the mortar of your life. Don't take a sledgehammer to the place that you fit in God's grand tapestry of life. Don't, don't take your brick out of the wall and say, I will find meaning apart from him. It's a foolhardy pursuit. It's not always evil things that take our eyes off of Christ. It's not always things that are inherently sinful that keep us from finding our meaning and fulfillment in him. Sometimes we just sell out our lives to our spouse, our kids, a cause, an aim, a pursuit. And we forget that if He is the center of our lives, all other things makes sense. We are not strewn about the yard, but we are brought into the grand plan for which God has created us. Would you pray with me? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Altar team, you can come. Today we're going to spend a few minutes aligning our lives with this Jesus. It's the most important thing that we can do at this moment. 
is to align our lives with this Jesus, to put our eyes and our focus back on him in this place. It's easy to pursue other images of God, easy to look for other sources of meaning, but they will not satisfy, nor will they be based in truth. Today, can we spend a few moments together seeking out this Lord? Today, will you join me in taking a few minutes to realign our lives in sight of him? First off today, if you are here and for some reason you're seeing the light today like Saul did, and you would say, Pastor Matt, I am concerned that I have never fully recognized who Jesus is. I've heard that he's my Lord, and I've heard that he's my Savior. And I may even recognize that, that I believe what you've said. He's, he's risen from the dead, but I don't know that I've ever had that moment where I said, Jesus I want to bring my life into line with what I was created for. I want to confess my sins to you. I want to be made clean and whole. I, I want to be redeemed like Pastor Matt's talking about. And I want to know that I belong to the one who created me. There's lots of words in the language for that redemption, salvation, repentance, but are you ready to fix your eyes upon Jesus for the rest of your life today? If that's you, would you just raise a hand to heaven? Say, today, Lord Jesus, I'm fixing my eyes on you from this point forward. I see those hands. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. You can put them back down. God bless you. That's just a moment of honesty with you and the Lord. I get to be a part of it as a pastor. It's pretty cool. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I would invite you, if you raised your hand today, to take a bold step. Don't wait for my prayer for you. Why don't you come and pray with someone on our altar team? Tell them exactly what's going on in your life and say, I just want to make Christ the center of my life today. You can come right now as I call others. But for the rest of you today, who you know that Jesus is Lord, and you just want to realign your life with him in this place, and you want to move towards him, why don't you move towards him today? These altars are open. You can kneel before the Lord and just say, God, I am moving towards you. I need you. I want to be close to you again. Maybe you want to say, just want somebody on our prayer team, can you pray for me? My life just feels out of alignment today. But from this point, these altars are open. Let's make this place a house of prayer. If God's speaking to your heart today, would you come? Would you come?